Hello everyone, this is Tom Fox, and I would like to welcome you to the newest addition to the Compliance Podcast Network from the Editor's Desk, a podcast where myself and Dave Leefort, Editor-in-Chief at Compliance Week, unpack some of the top stories which have or will appear in Compliance Week each month. We look at the top compliance stories, talk some sports, and generally try to solve the world's problems. In this episode, we take a look at some of the top articles that appeared in Compliance Week in June of 2021. Dave talks about his editorial for this month and the impact that it had on him. We take a look at the third-party risk management conference, which Compliance Week will be holding the last week of June. And we take a deep dive into the baseball cheating scandal and talk about some Celtics basketball news. I know you'll enjoy this podcast. From the Editor's Desk is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, and welcome to the newest edition to the Compliance Podcast Network from the Editor's Desk, the podcast where we unpack some of the top stories which have or will appear in Compliance Week, look at top compliance stories, talk some sports, and generally try to solve all of the world's problems. I am Tom Fox, your co-host, joined, as always, by Dave Leefort. Editor-in-Chief of Compliance Week. Dave, welcome. Thank you, Tom. As always, I am thrilled to be with you today uh, to talk about some of the top stories that we're talking about at Compliance Week, uh, some of what our writers will be working on, and as always, to to talk sports. And now that we're in prime baseball season, we're uh, I'm sure we'll have a great discussion today. Uh, so besides baseball, today we're going to look back at some of our top stories from June, look at our upcoming third-party risk conference next week, and uh, like I had mentioned, talk some socks and, uh, and baseball controversies. Uh, maybe we can even throw in some uh, uh, Celtics in there too, Dave. Oh, yeah. All right. Yeah, I forgot about new news for the Celtics this week. Yes, a lot of changes happening. Well, Dave, could we perhaps start off with uh, some of uh, your top stories from the month of June that appeared in Compliance Week, or maybe some of the favorite stories that uh, you, you and your team worked on? Yeah, so, uh, you know, I think for for the purposes of the discussion today, I mean, the, the, the story that has made the biggest impact, at least according to our readers, like looking at our traffic, is the uh, the the fine the GDPR fine that is looks like it's coming out of Luxembourg of all places uh, against uh, Amazon. So uh, so Amazon has is essentially their European headquarters is in uh, is in Luxembourg and the uh, the data protection authority there is threatening of a fine of more than 425 million so million dollars uh, so that's I think 350. Uh, euros. So, you know, just for context, the biggest GDPR issue, fine issued so far is 50 million. So it's sort of uh, five or six times that. Uh, and this is this is over the way that Amazon collects personal data and uses it to to market to individuals. So this this could potentially be a big deal and have a real trickle-down effect to other companies such as the Facebooks, the Googles, uh, the other other big tech companies. So a lot of people are, are looking at this closely. Uh, and in particular, um, you know, our, our, it's, it's, our, it's our most traffic story of the month. So our readers are keeping a very, very close 
eye on this. Um, now, there has been no public announcement of this so far. It's been reported in, Wall in the Wall Street Journal and uh, in other places. However, when we reached out to the regulator, uh, they essentially gave us a no comment. So we would have gotten pointed in another direction had it not been true. So I have no reason to believe that uh, that this is this is anything but um, but true information. So this is um, so in. We talked to to one expert who sort of compared this size of a fine to uh, sort of the uh, he compared it to the UK Data Protection Act of 1998, um, saying that businesses found it cheaper to budget for fines than to actually comply with the law or change the way they do business. So, and I don't think that is that's very that's very much not in keeping step with the spirit of the GDPR. Uh, so it'll be interesting to see what ha what ends up happening with this. Uh, again, nothing is final yet, um, uh, but a lot of companies are keeping a very close eye on this. Um, another one, uh, another topic that's bubbled up for readers this week is the trend. Uh, and again, this is something that's been going on for for months now: is uh, cyber attacks, cyber breaches. So. This, the past few weeks, we've seen Carnival, Wegmans, McDonald's, Volkswagen, CVS, uh, either all victims of a data breach or alerted to gaps in their security controls. So this is another area that we've written a ton on. Um, we, are, we have a story posted now that goes into a little bit of depth on what happened in each situation. Uh, but the uh, But most of them, actually some of them are self-disclosed. Uh, but some of them are also, uh, actually most of them are self-disclosed actually. Uh, it, but also one of them, Volkswagen in particular, has to do with unauthorized third party obtaining personal customer information. So, uh, you know, this, this, I guess, sort of transitions into the area of third party risks where, of course, you're liable for, you know, if you, if you have data stored with a third party, uh, you, of course, are liable if that data gets stolen from that third party. So a big part of managing your third parties is making sure that that their that their data protection uh, policies and procedures are as strong as yours, because the the weakest link in the chain might not even be your link at all. So it's something that that a lot of people are are paying very close attention to. Uh, any um, uh, commentary or kind of editorials that uh, particularly struck your eye this week or other than maybe just a kind of straight reporting, Dave? So there is there is one. It was actually something that was that was written by by me. Uh, so I wrote last week about uh, Juneteenth becoming a national holiday. Um, and so, you know, as as you know, Juneteenth is the date uh, celebrated by uh, by Black Americans ever since the 1800s of the date June 19th that uh, that marked the uh, the date that slaves in Galveston, Texas, were informed of their freedom back in 18, uh, 1865, two months after the Civil War ended, and two years after the uh, Emancipation Proclamation by Abraham Lincoln. So. Uh, it was something that I, I felt passionately about writing because for me personally, uh, so I'm a, uh, I'm a white man in my mid-40s, Juneteenth wasn't something that I was even uh, aware of, embarrassingly, until about a couple of years ago. Never learned about it in school. 
never talked about among my circle of friends or family. So it wasn't until you know the past couple of years that it's even entered my consciousness, uh, to be honest. So I, I sort of explored explored that a little bit along with the the role that strong ethical leaders can play in raising things like this into our consciousness. So so I I drew on the example of when President Biden was in Tulsa uh, back in June to uh, or early June to talk about the uh, the Tulsa uh, race massacre. Um, I think it was the hundred hundred year hundredth anniversary of that. Um, I'm just calling the story up here so I get my facts straight. Um, and to me. You know that was that was another thing I had never heard of the Tulsa Tulsa race massacre. So this was uh, this was again something that, along with Juneteenth, was never taught in school, was never sort of in my in my sphere of uh, attention. Um, but you know, as when when I was I was watching this on TV, I remember it. It was it was June first, and and President Biden was in Tulsa talking about uh, you know. Talking about 100 years ago, a violent white supremacist mob raided, firebombed, destroyed 35 square blocks of a thriving black neighborhood. He used very strong words. He uh, he talked about systemic racism. So this was this was a the most powerful man in the U.S., arguably the most powerful man of the world, sort of acknowledging systemic racism. And that to me was, that's an important thing. These are important things when leaders make statements like this. Uh, and Juneteenth, the, the sort of declaring it a federal holiday, the fact that Congress was able to do it so quickly, uh, that Biden signed off on it quickly, essentially the day before, and then it was a federal holiday the day after, Compliance Week, um, uh, we, we sort of had a, a group discussion about it, and we had, a, we had a holiday on Monday to acknowledge it. So, I mean, it, it, if it weren't for strong leaders, people, I mean, honestly, people like me, uh, to, to, to draw awareness for people like me of, of important things like this. Things like Juneteenth and the Tulsa Race Massacre, these are, you know, Juneteenth is a celebration in the black community, but it's also, uh, it's also it's a celebration of freedom, but it's also a reminder that black people have systemically had it more difficult. Be it the slow, painful abolishment of slavery, the protracted battle for equal rights, the, the social justice movement that we've seen in the past couple of years with Black Lives Matter and the murder of George Floyd in police custody. Uh, so I think we're, we're really seeing a, a turning point um, with acknowledgement from very powerful, very important people. You're also seeing it in in the corporate world too. Uh, you just you saw you know not on not on the issue of race, but the issue of uh, of climate change. Uh, you saw uh, I believe it was uh, Exxon that had <clears throat> activist investors uh, were able to change over I think two or three of the of the board seats, um, and uh, there was an, a, another oil company. Three, three board seats, uh, and there was, I think it was, was it mobile? You might have to, you might have to help me here. Uh, there was another, another Shell. company, it was Shell, right? It was Shell in the, in the Dutch courts when they were, they were essentially held legally liable for climate change. I mean, this, these are, these are landmark moments, and these are big, big decisions that are going to, uh, that are going to change regulations and they're going to change opinions and they're going to bring more and more attention we're really at a at a pivotal point here um, on things like social justice and race relations and climate change 
uh, all of these things were, were and, and sort of my, just to wrap it up, my column it was sort of a, uh, how the, 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 the role that leadership plays in acknowledging and showing vulnerability and admitting fault uh, can make a very big impact. Uh, in a, in a, I guess in a very general way, but more specifically uh, to people who may not be uh, as aware of, of such things like Juneteenth or the Tulsa Race Massacre um, for people like me. Well, first of all, I want to acknowledge you for writing that. I thought it was incredibly brave on your part to do so and acknowledge uh, that those weren't things that you had grown up knowing about. Uh, being from Texas, I've known about Juneteenth all my life. Yeah. And my father was from Tulsa. So the same with the Tulsa race massacres. But um, that what I really wanted to maybe follow up with, Dave, is Compliance Week has written extensively about ESG and other social corporate social issues, uh, do you see sort of the, the remit of compliance expanding to cover uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion, social justice, uh, ESG, or perhaps some other topics that may have expanded from where compliance was 10 years ago? Yeah, I, I, I really do. But I, but I think that we're in, we're in this transition period where, you know, it, it sort of starts with uh, you know, businesses obviously care a lot about what investors think and what investors are saying. And you're having more activist investors asking very difficult questions of these businesses about what what are your uh, what are your climate change priorities? How are what are you doing on diversity, equity, and inclusion? And these corporate leaders are facing these hard questions. And who are they turning to? They're turning to compliance in a lot of cases, because the compliance has has that not has that store of knowledge and has sort of been the 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 ethical home or the ethical heart I guess of of some of these organizations. So more and more, it's becoming in compliance's remit to uh, to create new policies, to create new procedures that deal with uh, that deal with these things that are important to invest not only investors but but stakeholders, people, companies, employees. Uh, you know, I'm I'm a big believer that you know, your first job as an organization is to is to take care of your employees and to listen to your employees. And, you know, this is this is an acknowledgement that this is important to these people. And companies are are sort of having a, a moment of awareness here. And compliance is a big part of the change that I think you're you're seeing uh, in corporate culture. And also part of the change that's still to come because a lot of a lot of these policies, news policies and procedures are still in the very early stages. Companies don't yet know how to uh, correctly, or I guess there, there, there's no standard for reporting, uh, you know, ESG efforts, for example. Um, obviously greenwashing, when you sort of say one thing about your climate change efforts and you're doing something else, uh, you know, greenwashing is a big, is a big issue. Um, if you're if you're caught, uh, you know, saying that your you, you know your fleet of trucks will be uh, or sort of is uh, is running on you know 20% electric, and in reality it's 5%. Just giving an example. Um, if you're proven to sort of be lying about that, then that's that's that hurts your reputation not only among uh, obviously uh, shareholders but within your own company too, and it's going to cost you employees, especially at a time when 
uh, employees are sort of having more and more more power, more of a say. It's, it's you know, hybrid work. Uh, that obviously is, it's not essentially, re not related to to ESG in a big way, but it, but it does represent the sort of shift in power. Uh, the employees now have more, um, I guess, more of a voice, I'll say, um, than in any time that I've been sort of involved with, you know, in, in corporate America, or at least corporate business journalism. Dave, um, you have a, as you mentioned at the top of the show, Compliance Week has a conference next week on third-party risk management in 2021. Given the changes we've seen in risk uh, over the past year and what changes will occur going forward, I frank, frankly cannot think of a more timely conference. I was wondering if you could give us some of the highlights and then uh, we're going to link to it in the show notes, but tell people where they could go to register uh, as well. Yeah, so so traditionally we we hold at least one third party risk management uh, event each year. Um, the past few years we've had two. This year we this is our second one of the year of well I guess second one in the past twelve months I'll say, and we do it because it's such a popular uh, a popular draw, and people are so hungry for knowledge and best practices in this area because it is so tough to nail down uh now if you now you throw in the the pandemic and as you know obviously as you know supply chains got upended this last 16 months or so companies had to pivot quickly add new vendors add new business partners work with work with new organizations in order to continue to stay in business to continue to do what they're doing for 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 business purposes. So the question is, did they do their proper due diligence when vetting these new third parties? The answer in a lot of cases is no, they didn't. And so now that we're we're sort of uh, emerging from, from the pandemic, companies are taking the time to pause and say, okay, this has been a pretty crazy last, you know, 12 plus months. Let's let's do a little catch up and let's let's do our proper due diligence on a lot of these new third parties that we're working with. It's, you know, third party risk has been a top priority for a while, but now it's it's more than ever uh, front and center. So it's especially in today's world where you know, and I'm going to bring um, cyber risk into it, too because you're, we're seeing um, a lot more, especially ransomware attacks. Uh, and we're actually now seeing ransomware as a service emerging where these, where hackers are, are selling, uh, selling ransomware software to, to other groups. And those groups are, you know, essentially holding companies' data hostage. So if your data sits with, you know, 100, 200 third parties, it is your responsibility to know what is your third third party's policy regarding a ransomware attack. What are their policies and procedures? And so, to to not only make sure that your own house is in order, but to make sure the houses of all of your third parties are in order, is is quite the undertaking. And it's it's really hard to uh, to quantify the resources that are necessary for that. So a lot of a lot of companies are turning to software vendors or turning to 
uh, turning to essentially third parties to help to manage their their third party risk. So we're, we're all of that we're examining as part of this two day conference next week. Uh, it's next Tuesday, next Wednesday. Um, starts at 9 a.m. Tuesday, 9 a.m. both days actually. Uh, so our our lineup features. Um, uh, Linda Tuck Chapman is going to deliver the, the keynote on day one. She's the CEO for the Third Party Risk Institute, uh, one of the biggest organizations out there that, that provides uh, third party training. Um, Linda was not only the founder of that institute, but she was one of the chief, the first chief procurement officers and head of third party risk management in the financial services sector. So she's been in this business for a long, long time and one of the foremost experts. Um, Another another day one feature is we have a fireside chat with Diana Jones. She's the director of legal compliance at Uber. Um, certainly an extremely interesting organization, um, full of third party risks. So it'll be uh, it'll be fascinating to see what she has to say on Wednesday. Uh, this is a name I know you're familiar with. Um, we've got Chuck DeRoss, partner at Morrison and Forrester, um, one of the foremost experts in FCPA. Uh, dubbed Mr. FCPA by uh, the Washington Post, I believe. Um, so, and as you know, also many FCPA matters boil down to uh, third parties and the actions of uh, taken by third parties that companies are held responsible for. So, we're going to talk to him more uh, more about that. So, it's going to be uh, it's going to be a great two days. It's a virtual event, one of our last virtual events before we go back to in person, thankfully. Um, so, in order to if you're not already registered, you can go to compliancesweek.com and uh, click on our third-party risk management event uh, right in the drop-down menu at the top of the page. If you enter code DAVE100, D-A-V-E-100, at checkout, you can get free admission. Uh, so this one, we are... Um, uh, we're letting we're let, we're opening the doors on this one, so we're let, we're letting people in. So it's the code is Dave 100. Get two days of of great insights, great advice. Uh, I think we've got 10 or 12 CPE credits as well. So um, come join us. It'll be great discussions uh, and really really terrific insights. So once again, we're going to link to that uh, site and the code in the show notes. Dave, I was wondering, we're nearing the end of our A segment, but could you give us maybe a teaser of uh, a couple of stories that uh, you and your team are working on for the July edition of Compliance Week? Yeah, so one thing that we are very excited about is we have a series coming out in July, um, not sure quite when, probably mid-July, on whistleblowers, on what motivates whistleblowers to, to step forward also what what happens to them after they they step forward what kind of uh you know what kind of repercussions do they face has that uh has it really changed over the years because you know you've got a lot of companies saying now that you know we we do not uh you know we will not retaliate against whistleblowers their official policies against that but uh, does that translate to reality? So uh, Aaron Nicodemus, one of our reporters, um, has talked to about a dozen whistleblowers. In fact, he's got an interview today with one of the most high-profile whistleblowers out there, uh, Sharon Watkins, who blew the whistle on uh, Enron uh, back in the early 2000s. So um, that's going to be a great series that it really explores the, the personal stories of 
you know, for example, what happens five, 10 years after you've blown the whistle? Where, where are some of these people now? Are they, are they in their uh, chosen industries? Have they been forced to adapt? Um, exploring things like, you know, much higher divorce rates among whistleblowers and what's, what sort of, what other, what obstacles stand in whistleblowers way? And there, there are a lot of them. Uh, and granted, yes, it has gotten better over the years, but it's not, it's not the rosy picture uh, that some companies portray it to be. So we're really excited about that. That's, a, I think, a four or five part series that you'll see on ComplianceWeek.com in, uh, in mid-July. Uh, Dave, it's interesting. Uh, I interviewed Greg Keating earlier this year, a uh, well-known uh, defense side whistleblower attorney representing corporations. And I, he, uh, I put the question to him, uh, Sharon Watkins, um, two other women whose name just escaped my mind in 20, excuse me, 2002 were co-named uh, persons of the year as it was the year of the whistleblower. And right. I put the question to him, could 2021 be the year of the whistleblower? And I, he, he said it could well be. And I think your reporting may, wear, may well bear that out, that there seems to be a convergence on that topic in addition to ESG and some others. So I greatly look forward to, uh, to that series. Uh, Today we're now to my favorite part of the pod. <laughs> it is where we jointly talk sports and save the world. Um, <laughs> I'm ready and for it. Not that everyone listening to this podcast does not know that the Astros have won 10 straight games and now lead the AL West. <laughs> I'm sure everyone is aware of that fact. But oh, yeah. uh, baseball is embroiled in yet, yet another cheating scandal. Uh, this one does not inv involve beer or buffalo wings. It does not involve... <laughs> The sophistication of trash cans uh, doesn't even involve anabolic steroids, uh, but it involves the pitchers. And what I really wanted to maybe visit with you about is it seems like uh, every 10 years or so, and maybe even less now, we, we are having these major cheating scandals in baseball. Baseball's been around for 150 years. People are always trying to get an edge. Of course, there are rules. The rules may or may not be enforced. Um, but now it seems to be overlaid with something else, which is a change in generations, which uh, people are not as interested in baseball as perhaps you and I were when we were growing up, whether that's because we played Little League or because of our parents or, or whatever the reason, just I fell in love with the game as a kid. Um, and with social media now, we don't have a lot of clips that lend themselves to exciting social media. Clips and now baseball's uh, batting average is at the lowest it's been since 1968, which was the lowest ever. Uh, and they're contemplating rule changes to pick up the offense. So I was wondering if we might have a discussion about that, starting with is this scandal, which is pitchers yeah, is moving up their question. hands with uh, tacky I substances so they can get a they better grip on the ball. MLB's fault in allowing this to happen. The commissioner once again sent ESG out a memo goals. saying, don't so do they that. Launched a drive and uh, basically in seems to have left, uh, left it up to others to, to enforce. Approximately you see it a little bit differently. Electric vehicles through the year 2028. Well, first off, and baseball commissioners are famous for their memos that don't get, uh, don't get listened to. There's a famous Bud Selig steroid memo. 
administration uh, globally sort of by, by 2050. I find it fascinating that and this latest one. As um, part of the U.S. settlement, you know, it's, they were also required to, to invest in Electrify America. Have drawn a line in the sand that spent says, about two yes, billion okay dollars sticky, sticky on a network of charging stations across the, the U.S. Pine tar. So uh, to me, I still think their corporate same, identity you know, is same very much tied into pride, ambition, competitiveness. Uh, I, but, but it I, seems to me that whatever they set their minds to do, whether it's good or bad, popularity. they And you're right. It. We were seeing we were in the midst of a season where, uh, you know, the, the overall batting average was in the two, two, 230s. So even though games were going by quicker, they weren't as exciting. And, you know, you were, you were, we're at the point where it was sort of a open secret that these pitchers were, you know, almost, almost, almost openly using these sticky substances to improve their grip on the ball. And to be clear, when you improve your grip on the ball, you improve your spin rate on the ball, which sort of improves the movement of the ball, which makes it a lot more, a lot more difficult to hit. It means you can throw it faster. It means you do a lot more things with it. So yes, it makes it, I think it does make sense to cut back on this, but you're right too in that, baseball history is filled with with these kinds of things and then when you talk about it from 50 years ago and you know stealing signs and doing creative uh you know sort of on, on the cusp of cheat is this cheating is this competitive advantage and where does that line exist back a long time ago maybe when you know when we were kids we didn't care about that that's not what we were talking about um, we were talking about baseball because it was fun. Now it's almost maybe perhaps it's because we're adults now or perhaps it's because there is a lot more media scrutiny or perhaps it's because there are a lot more analytics. I hadn't heard a spin rate on a baseball until two or three years ago. Uh, but in any case, it's MLB is cracking down on it. and they actually just issued some new rules this week. I mean, I, I saw highlights on SportsCenter a couple days ago of of Max Scherzer walking off the mound and an umpire approaching him, you know, essentially patting him down like he's a criminal. You know, looks checking his glove, checking the brim of his cap, checking his fingers to make sure he doesn't have any sticky substances on them. Uh, and then you've got, you know, uh, Garrett Richards, who's a pitcher for the Red Sox, was pitching great during for the, during the start of the season when he was admittedly using these this sticky substance on his hands to to uh, to improve his grip on the ball and to improve his pitching. Now all of a sudden he can't use it, and he's saying that you know I'm I'm glad I, I I'm glad I began my career eight years ago before these rules were in place because now I don't know what I'm going to do. His ERA in the past his past five or six starts is abysmal. I mean he's he's been one of the worst pitchers in the league, uh, as opposed to one of the best over the first, well, not maybe not one of the best, but certainly better than his career averages because of this sticky substance. So I think it's inarguable that whatever the players were doing uh, to improve their grip on the ball was working. Now, MLB has stepped in, put a stop to it, and pitchers are pitchers are pissed. They're, they're taking this personally. They're seeing this as an infringement on, on their... Uh, I don't. I don't know how to. I don't know how to put this, but an infringement on the, their rights to to pitch as they see fit. So they they see batters using pine tar, and they're like, why you know why can't we why can't we grip the ball better? So I do see the point, but I also if it's having that big of an impact on the game offensively, and make no mistake, it definitely was. Uh, then I think MLB is. It, I don't know. I guess in the right to do this, even though 
yes, sticky substances have always been banned, but you know you haven't always seen uh, pitchers get patted down the way they are now. So it's is this too much policing? I mean, I think right now it is, but this also this is also sort of the uh, the start of the rule. So MLB has to come out strong here and make a, you know, make a few examples and sort of a, within a public show that yes, we, 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 we just implemented this rule. We're, we're serious about it this time. This isn't just a memo. This is actually a rule. Uh, and so we're going to inspect as many pictures as we have to, so they get the message. So I don't know. I mean, it's, to me, it's made it's made things a bit more interesting. Um, I don't want to make an ethical judgment call here. I don't know because it is that's a that's a hard one. It's a hard one for me. What do you think? Well, um, first of all, I think back to the 2017 uh, sign stealing scandal when the commissioner issued a memo uh, that was uh, based upon some things happening with the Red Sox. But when that memo got to Houston, General Manager, General Manager Jeff Lunau, he just threw it away. He didn't even pass it along to the team. So that's how um, that's how serious he thought a problem it was. And that's how serious he thought the commissioner making pronouncements was. The, the thing that struck me is just the absurdity now uh, of you having pitchers checked three times a game. Max Scherzer got checked three times a game. And then Joe Girardi, the manager of the Phillies, claimed he was doing it again. And uh, that was clearly gamesmanship. And Scherzer's response was to undress on the field. And now we've had a couple of pitchers do that. And first of all, I don't want to see that. I don't think it's an appropriate, you know, (laughs) at a game that's supposed to have some sort of uh, familiar values to it. And it's just, it's already been reduced to farce. I, I don't see how the umpires are well suited to uh, police this. Um, Major League Baseball knows from analytics who, who's got these great spin rates and who's, who doesn't. And they're not apparently telling anybody. And so they're leaving it to the teams and the umps to try to police it. And it just seems to be a farce now. The, the question about, uh, I mean, I, part of my problem is I grew up in an era where uh, following the Houston Astros, they never hit, period. <laughs> so that to me, two ones an exciting game. Uh, one zero with 10 strikeouts, I dig that kind of game. So that's, that's the other part that uh, uh, 1968 for me was a great year. Uh, and every time Bob Gibson was on the game of the week, I watched him. Oh, yeah. Um, but, uh, you know, things have changed a little bit now, but it seems to, uh, there's so many different things going on here. I read a piece in, uh, ESPN today, uh, or they talked to Theo Epstein who now works for MLB and, and he talked about multiple changes they could make. They could move the pitching mound back. They could, uh, actually enlarge the bases. That makes some difference. They could outlaw, um, the shifts. They can, they can do different things. Uh, they've never been able to figure out how to shorten the games. Uh, and four hours of 30 strikeouts, I admit, perhaps is less thrilling than four hours of uh, 15 to 14. <laughs> um, but they seem to be just at a logger's head or, or a real stoppage here on how to deal with uh, multiple problems as well. Yeah. So I think I think you're right in the fact that MLB is in a really tough spot because they – 
they want to be seen to be policing the game, but you're right. What they're doing now is a, is a little bit absurd. Uh, it's getting them a lot of attention, but it's probably not the, the right kind of attention. But they, you know, they hired Theo Epstein for a reason. And that reason was to, to, to come to generate some ideas on how to speed up the game, how to make it more interesting for a younger generation, because baseball is not sticking with the younger generation. And it's, and it has not helped that these, uh, that pitchers this season have essentially been dominating hitters. And while you might love a one, nothing or a two, one game, and I might appreciate that game. Uh, a lot of people that are younger than us do not. They're they're used to the excitement uh, that the others that all the more popular sports bring to the table, like the NFL and the NBA. It's not you know gone are the days when you will sit down and watch a four-hour baseball game sitting on your couch. Those days are gone for me too. I don't have four hours to do that. So it's I mean I I, I often have it on the radio in the background and I I sort of enjoy that as background noise. It's to me it's soothing, uh, but <laughs> sort of beside the point. Uh, but yes, MLB has a has a very big multiple big problems on their hands, and if they don't, I mean they they essentially created rules to implement mid season. So that so that tells you a lot about one, how serious they're taking it, and two, how serious they feel it is to the future of their game. And I think innovative ideas like like uh, uh, enlarging the bases and moving the pitcher's mound back, I would, I would tune in just to see that stuff. And the shift, I hate the shift. I hate the shift. I hate when the game stops and, and the, the fielders all go to the, the right side of the infield and then the big lefty is forced to either hit a ground ball to the, the left-hand side or hit a screaming liner that'd be a base hit in any other era, but it's a, it's a line drive out these days. So, so analytics have done a lot to advance the game, but they've done a lot to, to complicate it too. Uh, and again, it's all at the, all with the desire for any small advantage that you can get. That's why that's why the, the the sticky substances are applied to the baseball. That's why the shifts are in place. That's why the the there are uh, more pitching changes now than there there ever have been because you have these specialist pitchers, uh, and you have in-depth scouting reports on hitters. And it's uh, I don't know. I, I the only thing I that I do know is that MLB's got a big problem on their hands. They're they are taking steps, but whether the right steps. Uh, I don't know. Right now, it's uh, it's too soon to tell. But the early the early results are is it's a little bit uh, a little bit embarrassing, I think. Let's uh, switch over to uh, the NBA as we're down to the final four teams. I don't think uh, any of these teams were expected to be in the conference finals, um, but there was some big news out of Boston, and what I uh, can only say is one of the biggest self-inflicted wounds slash controversies by an ESPN commentator around that. But uh, tell us about the new coach for the Boston Celtics. Yeah, so this is this is all, this is new. I'm still learning about it myself, Ime Udoka, and I'm not even sure I'm pronouncing that right. So uh, he was he was quickly uh, pinpointed as a finalist for the job. He was hired, I believe it was yesterday. Um, he's a, He is a former player, although I had never heard of him as a player. Played for, I think, seven years in the NBA as a, as a role player. Uh, but notably, he was a disciple of uh, Greg Popovich in San Antonio. Uh, he also coached the uh, U.S. World Cup hoops team, of which 
two of the Celtics' biggest stars, Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown, were apart. Uh, so they were fans of uh, of Ime Udoka, Udoka uh, as well as Marcus Smart. So I think that played a role in the Celtics choosing him, as did the fact that uh, he, from what I've read about him so far, uh, Udoka is the type of coach. He's a Brad Stevens type coach. So Brad Stevens moved into Danny Ainge's shoes as uh, president of basketball operations with the Celtics. And he's sort of a very cerebral guy, Brad Stevens is. And I think that Udoka is the same thing, very intentional about how he does things. Uh, very much a very much a player's a very much a player's coach too. And I think that is that's essentially what the Celtics were looking for. They're building around their two their two stars, Jason Tatum, Jalen Brown. Whatever decision they were gonna make about their coach was gonna be for with those two players in mind. They've already traded away. Uh, Kemba Walker. They brought it, brought back Al Horford or the shell of Al Horford, whatever, whatever he looks like next season. Um, but so <laughs> it's questionable whether these Celtics are moving in the right direction. But I think that a change, a, a shakeup was needed. The Celtics horribly underperformed this season. They were this was one of the most disappointing, uh, disenfranchising seasons as a fan because expectations were so high going in. They did great in the bubble. They had all of their key players back, and they just didn't gel. They didn't. They didn't bring any energy, and I think even Brad, Brad Stevens knew that it was time for a change. After a while, you just you just tune somebody out. And you know, one thing I want to interject. I know we're wrapping up here, but the best story I've heard so far about Ime Udoka was that when he was a player, he was playing in Algeria, and a brawl broke out in the locker room he was in that included fans. And so fans somehow got to the locker room as this brawl was breaking out. And I guess from the stories that I, that I, the story that I was reading was that Udoka turned into sort of like a, a Mortal Kombat fighting machine. He was, he, he apparently was, was laying people out. Fans were, were, were jumping down and he was giving his, his teammates heads up on sort of like, essentially it seemed to me in reading about it, like a, almost a life and death situation. And that he sort of was, uh, I don't know. He he's a he's a fighter. I'll, I'll just I'll leave it at that. But um, I I want to hear him answer the questions about that more than anything. I've I honestly have yet to hear him speak. Um, he's not somebody that many people know a lot about. So I'm I'm excited to to get to know him as a coach to see how he to see how he handles things, see how he handles players. They needed another voice in there. That's that's uh, you know that's the that's the honest truth with the Celtics. Any Celtics fan will tell you that. Um. And uh, I don't know, just excited to give him a chance and see what he can do. This is definitely a talented team uh, that sort of drastically underperformed last season. So I think any change is a good one, but I'm in particular excited about this one. Dave, I have to bring up Jay Williams. And oh, yeah. he had one of the worst non-kind of political controversy tweets that I've ever seen. And the tweet was that the new coach was the first African-American coach of the Boston Celtics. And not only was that not correct, but that coach was the first African-American coach in the NBA. That coach also happens to hold 12 NBA titles and is probably <laughs> one of the top five players of all time. And uh, I, I wasn't offended by that, but I just thought, how, how could he miss Bill Russell. Who could ever forget Bill I Russell? I know. I know. So, yeah, I, I saw that, too. And 
even more even more insulting, I guess, than that is the fact that he quickly tweeted, "Oh, uh, I was hacked." You know, the 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 the, res the response whenever you tweet something when you have Twitter regret is you say, "Oh, I was hacked. Someone stole my password." You know, that's it's insulting, right? It's insulting to to fan. It's insulting to anybody who sees it because we all know the truth. Is he, he he misspoke. He tweeted too soon. You know, an an apology would probably work a lot better. But yeah, it's it was. You know, I think Boston as a city gets a gets a bad rap when it comes to uh, race relations, and I think you know that might have played a part. in, you know. Uh, Jay Williams feeling like he needed to applaud the Celtics for hiring their first African-American coach, which of course, number one was patently false. They were the first team to hire an African-American coach. It was the greatest player of all time. Uh, and their, their last African-American coach won a title in 2010, Doc Rivers. And they've had, I, I can think off the top of my head, at least three to four African-American head coaches. So it's not like, you know, he wasn't just, just off by a little bit. Uh, he was embarrassingly off. And instead of acknowledging, oops, I made a mistake, he did what you do on Twitter is you, you say you were hacked. So it was, it was embarrassing. And, uh, you know, I'm, yeah, I don't, I don't know what else to say, except it was, you know, it felt, it felt a little bit like a slap in the face and then another slap when, uh, he sort of, you know, tried to, tried to play it down by saying it wasn't him. And I have to shout out to a guy who I think it's a bomb rush, which is Casey Jones, who was also yes. uh, one of those yes. coaches for championship. Yeah, those yeah. mid-80s Celtics teams were tremendous. And Casey Jones was at was the heart of those teams. You know, of course, Larry Bird, Robert Parrish, Kevin McHale. But, but Casey Jones was, you know, he was he was uh, he was phenomenal. He was he understated, but you knew he had a presence. He had a presence. Yeah. Well, Dave, uh, it's been a great catch up and uh, thanks again. I look forward to uh, catching up with you next month. Same here, Tom. Talk to you then. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox again. I'd like to thank you for listening to this episode of From the Editor's Desk, a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. I hope you will join Dave and I on the last Friday of each month where we get together to take a retrospective look back of what's appeared in Compliance Week and what may be coming for the next month. If you are interested in how ESG intersects with compliance, check out my new podcast, The ESG Report, also appearing on the Compliance Podcast Network.